From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a special reflection on the world through poetry. Poetry has that power to take something that's very personal and create this very wide net of communication and understanding that I think is at the foundation of why we we write poetry. From gentrification to racial inequities. You're running on easy words while fathers are telling their boys how to survive a police encounter as his surviving's a choice. Indigenous voices. The way that we talk as Navajos, an ordinary conversation, really has its own poetic cadence. We're kind of thinking through two languages. And moments of wonder. We'll revisit conversations with poets in Colorado as they frame this moment in time. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Today, a special episode as we reflect on the world through poetry. When protests against police brutality and racism began in Denver last May, poet Uche Ubuji, a Nigerian immigrant from Superior, sat down and wrote a piece titled Easy Words. You're running on easy words while fathers are telling their boys how to survive a police encounter as his surviving's a choice. A hundred different strategies all born out of the hope that the father that's still alive found the secret for dodging the rope. You're running on easy words when the badges, with all their training, can be relied on not to kill a child in some fear nobody's naming. And the boy is tall as a man while barely a teenager. We can only guess how his awkwardness might prove his mortal danger. You're running on easy words while fathers fret for their daughters whose brown skins get taken for deep discomforting waters and the self-possession that should be her protection in the wilderness will trigger the weak will to weave against her their wickedness. And Uche joins me now to talk about his piece. Hi, Uche. Good morning, Avery. Tell me a little more about what drove you to write this piece and put it out in the world. When the protests against the killing of George Floyd and, of course, Ahmaud Arbery and everyone else came about, I... uh, I was stunned. And uh, I was also stunned because in the intentionally politically diverse circles that I cultivate, um, you know, I heard, of course, a lot of solidarity, a lot of outrage. But I also heard, you know, a lot of folks, maybe different ends of the political spectrum, you would put, um, you know, uh, abuse of the demonstrators or denial of the fact that there are entrenched racial or social justice issues in America. And I spent a lot of time just listening. I didn't, I tend not to be too outward politically except to close friends. So I spent a lot of time just listening and absorbing it. And uh, one morning, this about probably about a week after the protests uh, began in earnest in Denver, the poem just came out in a torrent. And I just realized that I was just reacting to not only what other people in my circles had been saying, but even other things in my own, you know, person that I had had to, um, you know, I'd had to realize that easy words are often a way not to listen to other people. And you write about a father who has to tell his children how to stay alive. 
Are you that father? That is me. Um, the, the, I believe uh, I believe it was. So when I first came to the U.S. Uh, in the in, at the beginning of the 90s, uh, you know, Diallo, Amadou Diallo, the uh, immigrant who was shot in New York, was still absolutely ringing. It was it, it was such a it, it was it put the chill in you that, you know, this could happen to you. This, I'm, a, I'm a Nigerian immigrant. He was the. Uh, you know, um, a Haitian immigrant, this could happen to anybody, you know, who's of dark skin. So when I started to have children and it became clear that they were growing like weeds and I realized that my three oldest are boys, I have three boys and one daughter, um, the three oldest are, are boys. And, you know, the, my, my middle son is, uh, he's taller than I am now. He's about six foot three and he has been followed by police on his way to school. Um, you know, even in our neighborhood where I must say that our relationship with the police and, and with authority has been pretty good. He's had that incident. And, I, and I've had to tell them, you know, my, my two oldest boys took a road trip to um, California for a wedding of a friend of theirs. And I sat down with them and told them what to do if they're in an encounter with the police. We had a very serious conversation about it because I just, yeah, it's, it's terrifying, to be honest. You start your poem, these are easy words you're speaking to me. What does the phrase easy words mean to you? I think easy words are the words that we have because we're not addressing what somebody in front of us is saying to us, but because we've already already decided something. We have some formula. We have a political position. We have something that's been ingrained from society, from culture, from our earliest upbringing. We have this thing that we're holding, and this thing is so hard to break out, and it's so easy to just reach back to those words, and you're, you know, listening to take your turn to talk. And um, those words that just come out and may not even be addressing the reality of the person who's speaking to you, those are the easy words. And and I was also thinking about the easy words of those in authority, in a position of power, who, of course, always say this, you know, there's plenty of opportunity, there's no racism, there's no problem, uh, you know, people who are killed are all resisting, that sort of thing. These are just easy, you know, words to use to suppress um the understanding of a real need for change. And there's a part in the poem where you flip that phrase around. And yet we run on easy words while expecting the immigrant who worked to build a business to accept that this destruction is imminent, to sacrifice their life's work to the burning fury of justice, though we know they won't be bailed out by the very system they trust in. Is that meant to acknowledge that the oppressed can also oppress others? Yes. This whole, I hope, I hope folks, uh, anyone who listens to this poem or hears this, does, understands that there's self-criticism in this, and there's, there is basically, I think, just something that I needed to get out that I thought needed to go all the way around. When the riots started, and you know, there, obviously, there were pictures of uh, damaged storefronts and that sort of thing, and sometimes somebody would post a feel-good story of um, maybe uh, a store owner who would say, "Well, you know, um, I'm will if this is the price." For people to pay attention and uh, for social justice to happen, it's a price I'm willing to happen, which is noble, and and I applaud that as well. But I'm an immigrant as well, and I had to build, you know, my life, career, family, everything in this country from nothing when I came. So I, my heart also breaks for those people who very often, you know, where we tend to be, immigrants tend to be the lowest end of the ladder, and so it's really easy to dismiss, um, you know. Uh, our needs and, and our responses. And so, yes, there's 
it's easy to say, okay, um, let's just go smash things. But we have to think that there are consequences to that as well. And we also have to remember that there are other social injustices that happen at the same time as uh, the ones that we are protesting in the moment. There are a lot of mentions of children and parents in this piece. I wonder, you've mentioned that you're having conversations with your kids, obviously, about racism. But what conversations are you having with them about this moment and this movement? And how does being a parent influence your art? Well, being a parent has uh, has been amazing for my art because you, you're you living a life all over again with your children and, and all the things that maybe you glossed over in your first go-around, you get to go back and explore them. And uh, But in my in my case, uh, working, you know, dealing dealing with the kids and trying to get them to, uh, you know, come up in this world and um, and to be the people who I want them to be. There's a continuum there where um, everything I've learned about how to express myself and how to get that out uh, interacts with everything I've learned about needing to be a father, needing to nurture my children, other children I'm involved in. I love to coach um, soccer, um, especially as well, and uh, I think that the reason why children feature so prominently in the piece is that they have to, they need to be spoken to by the older generation so that they understand that they have the self-possession to take things into their hands that need to be taken into their hands, whether environmental concerns, social justice concerns, etc. We speak to them so that they learn to speak for themselves. And you talked about the intersectional issues in your poem and climate change, systemic racism. And there's a line that goes, you're running on easy words, but slow to wean your engines of fossil fuels that choke us. Talk more about that. That partly was tied in with um, a bit of a call out there of how quickly the corporate, you know, um, misses came about the BLM movement. And, you know, it's these same corporations. Again, I'm uh, an immigrant who's been a business in business. I'm definitely not against corporations or anything, but I do believe that it's easy to, you know, on one hand say, you know, we stand with the protesters. And when you understand that there are some aspects of racism include the fact that, for example, environmental issues affect people of color far more, uh, you know, distressingly than they affect other groups. That's the sort of thing that a corporation that was really serious about addressing these things would go right to the boardroom and immediately start to tackle. And they're all intersectional. You know, the the dictum, you know, an injustice anywhere is the threat to justice everywhere applies. And this is actually only half of the full poem that I wrote. Um, I wanted to get something out punchy. I wanted it to be quick. I wanted it to be something that could be easily heard and digested. But in the other, I, I, I tackle issues such, you know, from feminism to LGBTQ issues, et cetera, um, and a lot of other intersectional issues that are all tend to be dismissed with easy words. Now, in about the 30 seconds we have left, I understand that you were set to publish a book that a bit, but it was on pause because of COVID-19. Will that book explore similar themes? Yes. Uh, um, most of my writing, I, again, I haven't been too political, even as a poet. So most of my writing has been about identity, having been brought up in Nigeria, in America, periods of schooling in the UK, and sometimes being confused about who I am. So the book is called Nchefu Road. It's coming out from the UK press. 
uh, called uh, Black Spring Publishing Group. And it's going to explore a lot of that identity. There's a lot of my native Igbo language and how I've had to reach back and uh, embrace those roots in it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Poet Uche Ubuji of Superior, Colorado. He wrote and performed the piece Easy Words After Protests Were Sparked by Police Brutality and Racism Last Summer. We spoke in June. Where you grow up helps shape who you are. But what happens when part of that place disappears or becomes unrecognizable? Bobby Lefebvre's family has lived in the North Denver neighborhood Sunnyside since the 1960s. And like much of Denver, it's changed a lot since he was little. Lefebvre was Colorado's Poet Laureate in 2019. That's when he showed Colorado Matters producer Alexander McMahon around Sunnyside, which has inspired him creatively throughout his life. Uh, here on the right... 4230, this is my mom's uh, mother's home. So that, that home's still in the family. Um, right across the street here on the corner is where my dad's parents live. But up here on the left is sort of where the VFW hall was. And if you look now, it's sort of all townhomes. Um, yeah. This corner here was the site of many parties and celebrations. And... Yeah, so like if... if... You were walking into the VFW hall with the door of them. Yeah, like right the on door the side. would be like right. So actually, right on the corner here, the door was sort of like facing the street. So you would walk in literally right here, sort of at the angle that you can see the these townhomes. The VFW is was really the place that working class families rented out for all of their celebrations. You know, so my parents actually celebrated their wedding here so they had their wedding ceremony here when a relative would pass there would be funeral celebrations here after the mass uh, large potlucks and you know people coming together for those things and it was it was something that existed here as sort of a monument to the community and it was long-standing you know for many many years this was a place that we gathered to celebrate mourn and all of those things In 2015, when it was all boarded up, you actually came down here and did a piece about the hall. Beyond the bones of this boarded up building, the spirit of the people beats to the rhythm of yesterday. Inside, the ghosts of proud veterans sit at the bar exchanging war stories and broken American dreams. If these walls could talk, they would be bilingual and multicultural. They would speak of weddings and baptisms and the tears loved ones shed after funerals. They would speak of brotherhood and community and the occasional fistfight in the parking lots, the handshake of respect after the blows were thrown. So tell me about why you really wanted to make this piece. You know, I we had heard that it was being demolished. And when you start to think of how many places are gone now, we often forget that buildings also hold cultural memory, right? And so I started to think about what has this building witnessed throughout its existence? How many wedding parties, how many birthday parties, how many funeral celebrations were celebrated there? And I started to think about all those stories in addition to the ones in my family and uh, just figured, hey, I'm going to kind of on a whim write a quick piece. And I I hit one of my friends up who's a, a videographer. We came down here. I literally wrote the piece on site. We had big cue cards um, that we we wrote the the poem onto so that I could perform the piece off on camera, and um, I just try to capture some of that spirit because once a building's gone, unfortunately, so too 
do a lot of the memories when you're not passing by it and have that daily reminder of what it was. So you spent a lot of your artistic career talking about gentrification and seems like this neighborhood has experienced a fair share of that. Absolutely. So what do you think people still don't fully understand about what gentrification does to a community? You know, I, I, there's so much conversation, you know, I, I've been speaking about the conversation. It's almost cliche at this point, like the word gentrification almost doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a tired term. And I think what we start to do, social scientists, when they start to study gentrification, they look at measurable things, right? So they look at the average home increase price, right? How much have homes increased in a certain period of time? What do the demographics look like? So these things that you can quantify. And so all of the check marks in these neighborhoods are, are hit. Demographic change, average income, people with college degrees, all of those things tie into the process, right, of how power and privilege works, um, how voices with power and privilege mean more to governments, to processes. And uh, I think one thing that's missed is the historical marginalization of mostly people of color in these neighborhoods and how at some point we were relegated to these neighborhoods through racist practices like redlining. And you know now that it's hot and sexy to be here again, folks are coming back and, and saying, this is ours now. So looking at all these townhomes, knowing what used to be here before, but the townhomes, you know, they also signify a lot of newcomers to the area. And I'm wondering, you know, does gentrification also vilify newcomers to an area and people who are excited to move here? You know, I don't think it's a, it's automatic villa. You know, I don't think it makes villains of them at all. I think that it is their responsibility to understand where they're moving into and understand the cultural and environmental context into which they're entering, right? I think all too often what happens with power and privilege is that folks move into a place and try to recreate it in their own image. And I think the, the primary issue with gentrification is cultural erasure, right? And so if someone moves into a neighborhood and completely disregards what was there previously, I think that's where conflict arises, when there's no acclimation or assimilation into existing culture and a an idea or uh, an attitude that we're here now, it's time for you to leave, right? And so I don't think that it automatically makes villains of folks, but I also don't think that it sets up communities for constructive dialogue because the process by which it's happening is emotional, it's social, it's economic, it's a modern manifestation of this sort of colonial attitude that this nation was built upon. So what is the name of this park? Uh, this is La Raza Park. We were in and around here basically our whole lives. You know, sometimes we'd grab food at Chubby's down the street and come here and eat. Uh, I went to school here, middle school at Horace Mann, and every now and then we'd, you know, ditch, also go to Chubby's, come here and eat. Uh, so it's really a marker of the neighborhood, the symbolism of this pyramid. There's a mural inside the kiosco here that was done by uh, David Ocelot Garcia that sort of, you know, is representative of, of the culture. And you're the first person of color and also the youngest to hold the Colorado Poet Laureate position. Yeah. Is that important to you? Absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm very proud to, you know, 
be both the youngest and the first person of color. Um, although, you know, in our, I don't know, over a hundred year history of the poet laureate ship here in Colorado, I'm absolutely certain I'm not the first person qualified who's been a person of color for that position. But I think sometimes we forget that arts and culture does not live outside of the, you know, house of racism and patriarchy and marginalization that most of our institutions are built upon. And so it's not surprising, uh, but I am, you know, super humbled and very grateful for the opportunity to serve and to be able to really elevate and amplify our voices. Do you view this position as also like a, an activist position or do you feel the responsibility to be involved in activism? My creative work and my community work and my social work lives at the intersection of all of these things. I don't necessarily see them as, I can't really untangle them. When you, you know, live this identity as a marginalized person, whether that's black communities, brown communities, indigenous communities, you know, when we're talking about women, anybody who is marginalized in this, you know, society, our identities are so complex and we have to approach everything we do in this intersectional way. And so I can't, like I said, I can't untangle those things from being so tightly married. And so I view a lot of the work that I do as a poet, as cultural work, as activist work. And so I think that my work will continue to address these things in a way that makes sense, in a way that is authentic to how I'm feeling about them, as well as with a strong understanding about how history and power and privilege has shaped this nation. What advice would you give young writers living in Colorado right now? You know, I think writing is, it's an interesting thing, right? It, I think so many of us who are writers, it's not something we do. It's just part of our identities. And we do it because there's this organic, innate drive to express ourselves. And I would say that do the best you can to connect with your voice, you know, have influences, read a lot, but really spend time finding your own voice because the more you do that, the closer you are to that, the more uh, robust and authentic your work's going to be and the truer your words will ring out to those outside of you. I think that all too often we worry about appeasing people or assimilating into what is the norm when really our diversity and our unique voices are what makes us so much more powerful. And we'd be surprised at how much those general themes that are maybe those personal themes that we think are very close to us resonate with people in general. And um, poetry has that power to take something that's very personal and create this very wide net of communication and um, understanding that I think is at the foundation of why we, we write poetry. Colorado's Poet Laureate Bobby Lefebvre speaking with Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon in September of 2019 in Denver's Sunnyside neighborhood. When we come back, our reflection on the world through poetry continues with the merging of two languages. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state, and CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Our next guest speaks to loss and points to hope during the pandemic. Tanea Winder is an award-winning poet, musician, and educator. Raised on the Southern Ute Reservation in Ignacio, Colorado, she's a member of the Duckwater Shoshone tribe. I met her socially distanced last month in Chautauqua Park near her home in Longmont, Colorado. Tanea, welcome. Thank you. You have a poem for us, and it's called Learning to Say I Love You. Yes. Learning to Say I Love You. My favorite conversations are with my grandmother while she teaches me words in Indian, as she says. I ask, how do you say, where did you go, and where are you going? Questions that layer my tongue in ash, reminding me of fire, the taste. Each time I speak, the slow burn of every loss I have witnessed cracks my lips. Go and going, axe singed into my bones, so I ask, teach me, I'm coming with you. So it sits rock heavy in my mouth because my tongue is at war with history. Boarding school, kill the Indian, save the man. Acts of colonization strain my pronunciation when I want to say, take me with you. It dissolves. Before I can stomach the sweetness of language hours, I am losing, I am lost, lodged somewhere in my throat between decades of broken syllables. Teach me how to reach the ones who are born already running. Teach me how to talk to the ones who need it most. Dear universe, gift me words that linger softly like dust. There must be a phrase to contain wherever you go, whether or not you know where you've been or where you are going. I love the phrase, gift me words that linger. It reminds me of the legacy that our loved ones leave us with. Tell me about your grandmother. Yeah, my grandmother just is one of the most kindest, gentle human beings I know. And she just taught us so much, like how you had mentioned recipes. Like she taught us how to cook so many different things. Like she taught us how to knit and sew and just a lot about survival. I feel like she really gave me my voice and taught me what what love is. And the poem's called Learning to Say I Love You. What are the ways that your grandmother taught you to say I love you? I would just say in everything, you know, one of her favorite memories that she shares from boarding school is how she won this talent show contest singing Blue Moon. And so I really look at her as giving me that gift of voice and and those words and song. And I try to honor her legacy in that way because I feel like that's how I communicate. That's my language of love is singing and poetry and music. Um, But even just things like acting with kindness, the way she held my hand, like I always felt safe and protected. And I think That was her love language for so many of us in my family. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poem and about your grandmother. Thank you. Tanea Winder is an award-winning poet, musician, and educator. We spoke in December. Two languages come together in our next guest's poetry, English and Navajo. We'll let her introduce herself in her native tongue, also called Dene. She'll say her name, then her parents' and grandparents' clans. Yak e she e lucy kapahatso, the shishne, 
in 2013, Lucy Tapahanso became the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. Lucy, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. You were born in Shiprock, New Mexico, in the Navajo Nation. Now you live in Santa Fe. Specific places, specific mountains are vital in your poetry. Tell me about why poems with a sense of place are important to you. We are taught that we are earth surface people and we're watched over by our father, the sky, and then we are supported by Nasan, our mother, the earth, and we exist between the two, so we're always cared for and we are always looked after. I love that, the sense of sort of cradling. Yes, I think as a Navajo person, place is really important and we we're very attached to our sacred mountains, and the Navajo Nation is, the boundaries of it are within four sacred mountains. So it's natural then, as a poet, that that would be reflected in the work. Now, Diné is your first language. You learned English in a boarding school in the 1960s, where you actually weren't allowed to speak your native language. You publish poems that are a mix of English and Diné. Tell me about the relationship between those languages in your poetry. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting and um, not really something that I often give much thought to. But because I learned Diné first, I think the way that I see the world and that people who have language other than English as their first language, you kind of... You know, everything you do, the way that you see the world, and just the way that you live is filtered through uh, the sensibilities and worldview and language. And then when I learned English, it gave me another lens with which to see the world. You actually conceive of your poems in Navajo first, is that right? Yes, I'm always sort of thinking in Navajo. And hearing my parents' voices or my relatives' voices. And then writing things down. And, you know, I grew up in a time when we couldn't speak Navajo. So I didn't associate Navajo with being written. There was a big emphasis at the school I went to on penmanship. I began to associate physically writing the sound of pencil on paper with reading and then with writing a poem. So so even as I'm writing, whatever I'm going to write is conceived of in Navajo. I really like the flexibility of the two languages. Now you've chosen a poem to read for us. What is this one called? This is a poem, one of the first poems I wrote, and I wrote it in Leslie Silco's class, and it's called Hills Brothers Coffee. Hills Brothers Coffee. My uncle is a small man in Navajo. We call him Shitaayaj, my mother's brother. He doesn't know English, but his name in the white way is Tom Jim. He lives about a mile or so down the road from
from our house. One morning, he sat in the kitchen, drinking coffee. I just came over, he said. The store is where I'm going to. He tells me about how my mother seems to be gone every time he comes over. Maybe she sees me coming, then runs and jumps in her car and speeds away. He says, smiling. We both laugh just to think of my mother jumping in her car and speeding. I pour him more coffee, and he spoons in sugar and cream until it looks almost like a chocolate shake. Then he sees the coffee can. Oh, that's that coffee with the man in a dress, like a churchman. Oh, that's the one that does it for me. Very good coffee. We sit down again, and he tells me, "Some coffee has no kick, but this one is the one. It does it good for me." I pour us both a cup, and while we wait for my mother, his eyes crinkle with a smile, and he says, "Yes, ah,、oh, yes, this is the very one." Putting in more sugar and cream, so I usually buy Hills Brothers coffee once or sometimes twice a day. I drink a hot coffee, and it sure does it for me. I love that poem. It's so it's so subtly funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Like you said, you wrote that poem in college in a class Leslie Mormon Silco taught. She's a Laguna Pueblo poet, and she was your first native professor. That class actually changed the course of your career, right? It really did. Before that, I was in journalism. On a whim, I took her class in poetry writing. Seeing her in that position made me realize the possibilities, and then the fact that. She and the class really connected to my poetry was also just a big boost for my writing and the way that just the way that I was writing. I realized that the way that we talk as Navajos, an ordinary conversation, really has its own poetic cadence, and it's really poetic in its own way. Just because we're kind of thinking through two languages, and it's very unique and. Can be really beautiful, and then also really funny too, because we're naturally just like always liking stories. You know, we laugh and recount different things that people did. So putting all those together, I think, just made、uh, the poetry have a unique flavor that didn't exist before. And you went on to earn your master's in creative writing, but there was a moment in your university studies when you were discouraged studying Old English in particular. What got you through it? So I was having a really hard time, and I was afraid I would fail my classes. And you know, I was on scholarship, so I had to keep my grades up. And I remember talking to my mother about it. And you know, my parents didn't really have an understanding of what I was studying or. Anything like that, but they knew that I was 
distressed. So they put together an all-night ceremony for me. And I went back to Shiprock. And, you know, I had to stay up all night because that's just the way the ceremony is set up. So I was sitting by the medicine man and repeating everything that he was saying in Navajo. And early in the morning, um, of course, I was really sleepy. But I was repeating the words after him. And I was had my eyes closed on this. I was repeating it. I began to realize that the prayer that he was saying had stanzas and things were repeated. And I kind of saw them in my mind's eye. I could see where the lines would break. It was such a breakthrough when I realized that our traditions, our prayers and ceremonies and songs and stories had that really wonderful, complex, very intricate form that had come from thousands of years ago. And the difference was that our literary traditions are memorized. They're not written down. And Western form is written down. So once I realized that, I was able to appreciate Western literature and various forms of poetry. And then, you know, was really drawn to um, writing sonnets and villanelles and sestinas. And, and it was re- it's really nice because, again, I have the two languages to work with. You were the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. And that's a position that you held from 2013 to 2015. How do you see that position preserving and shaping Navajo culture? It was very much an honor. And I think that the position and the creation of it very much honors the oral literary tradition that I, I just mentioned. You know, it, it really is an acknowledgement of our past, of our ancestors, how that shaped us and how it strengthens us. And that even though our, you know, a lot of the writing now, creative work is in Navajo and English, it still has its own unique place. And it's really wonderful for the future of Navajo literature because that kind of melding of traditions and history, language and culture and education has evolved to a point that wouldn't have been possible if we weren't able to gain a Western education. So now, you know, educated Navajos are able to use what they learn, but with a Navajo lens on it. Lucy, thank you so much for talking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me to be a part of this program. Lucy Tapahanso is the Navajo Nation's first poet laureate. She retired as an English professor from the University of New Mexico. We spoke last January when she visited Denver for poetry with the American Indian College Fund, which is based here. Today, we're reflecting on the world with poets in Colorado, like CU Boulder professor Khadijah Queen. She dives into life's crises, yet makes room for moments of wonder. Her collection is anodyne, a word that has a lot of different meanings, including something that soothes. She spoke in September with Ryan Warner. 
you know, these poems reflect on the extremes of life, but also the everydayness. I, I wonder how you weave the momentous with the moments. I think that's what we do all the time. I think that's the nature of being a human being alive in any moment. We have these moments that are, are quotidian every day, and then things happen around us in the world and in our lives that change us. And do you think that poetry has to be a balance of those two? I mean, it occurs to me that if it's too momentous, it could be very difficult for the reader and for the poet. And if there's not enough momentousness, maybe it doesn't have enough impact. Is that a balance that you seek? It certainly is. I hesitate to say that it should be one way or the other, but I certainly, um, I approach it that way because that's what it feels like to me. That feels like the authentic experience to me. The first poem in this book grabs you with the title, In the Event of an Apocalypse, Be Ready to Die. Would you read a portion for us? Certainly, of course. In the event of an apocalypse, be ready to die. But do also remember Gallus, Arbaria, repositories of beauty now ruined to find exquisite, dirt-studded and mold-streaked monuments to the disappeared. Remember when pain was not to be seen or looked at, but institutionalized, invisible, unspoken, transformed, but not really transformed, covered up with made-up valor or resilience. Some people are not worth saving, no one wants to say, but they say it in judgment. They say it in looking away, avoiding evidence of suffering at all costs. Warned inert, we could watch ourselves, foolish, lose it all. Sometimes I think uh, poetry can be so difficult over the phone, Khadija, but there's really beautiful descriptions there amidst the idea of an apocalypse. Um, the line cut out a bit as you were imploring people in this poem to remember galleries, gardens, herbaria, repositories of beauty now ruin to find exquisite, dirt-studded and mold-streaked. I wonder how you think this piece resonates right now with the pandemic and climate change and systemic racism, which can feel like such existential threats. It does feel very urgent right now to do something, and yet it feels like we can't do anything, right? It feels like there's a sense of powerlessness to face all of these momentous things, as you mentioned, that there's too much it can overwhelm the reader, but certainly... It can also just overwhelm us <laughs> as a population. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing. Like I think that accounting um, that poetry provides, um, that space for reflection, for imagining a future that could be different than it would be if we didn't do anything at all, um, is powerful. And I think it's important and it's just as vital to um, to our lives as, you know, um, the study of science. We have to invite ourselves to imagine better. I really appreciate that right now. I think as someone in news, it is so easy to get overwhelmed by the daily crush of headlines that it doesn't leave much room for imagining 
But it sounds like you think imagining is critical to getting to a different world. Is that what I hear you saying? I absolutely do. Um, I think that without imagination, we just fall into, we can fall into despair. And some of the best things that we've invented have come out of imagination, mm. right? Um, com- coming from science or for, for art or even, you know, the media, like invention and imagination. Um, we don't move forward without those things. Okay, and this is why we need poets now more than ever to help us imagine (laughs) and to put words to those imaginations. Your poem, Double Life, explores your experiences as a black female professor in the disproportionately white world of academia. And you contrast foods, scents, and family memories with the challenges of living as a woman of color. I wonder if you might just set the scene of this poem up a bit before I have you read an excerpt. Certainly. Uh, I was sitting at the Hornet on Broadway with a friend of mine who's also a professor. She is um, uh, part of Hatchie, and we were just talking, and we were enjoying ourselves, and we were kind of loud, and um, the guy sitting next to us um, left because we were laughing, I guess, too loudly, like took their plates and like left, um, because we were talking about racism, but we were laughing. So I don't know. It was just a strange experience of, um, existing in public space, talking about something that affected us and our neighbors not wanting to hear it while they're eating. Okay. So the Hornet, the restaurant right on Broadway in Denver, that's a bit of the scene. That's right. Uh, So uh, let me have you just read uh, a little excerpt before we go. For dessert, we split peach cobbler topped with vanilla ice cream. I don't eat dairy, so she spooned it up and I basked in the warm sugar and fruit and surprise of caramel crisscrossed on the just right crust. Remembering my grandmother and the smell of nutmeg and cinnamon in her kitchen. Fresh peaches simmering in syrup in an old pot on the gas stove. Her fingers pinching quick dough, remembering her permanent frown as a pair of mirrored crescents between her eyes, the map of lines on her forehead. And as we speak, I am inheriting the furrows earned rightfully by crones. If you do it quickly, Grandma said, you can heal burns without leaving a scar. Smooth your injured skin, then peel and cut a potato in two and hold each rinsed half to the heated flay until the potato turns black. Repeat until it looks like nothing ever happened. I love how in that poem, Double Life, a moment sitting at a Denver restaurant can be an opportunity to reflect on your grandmother and the sense memories around food with her. Khadija, thanks so much for being with us. I'm so grateful for your work. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. The latest collection from Boulder poet Khadija Queen is called Anodyne. She spoke with Ryan Warner in September. My crown is a girl was a shining braid that I weaved into a python. I heard that life was an empty page that men would want to write on, write on. We leave you today with music from Denver artist Claire Haywood. But I got the pearl and an ace in play with a box for those old
Singer-songwriter Claire Haywood is first and foremost a poet. Her journey began with pages and pages of poems, which she turned into music after taking voice and guitar lessons online. After only a few years, she's established herself in the Denver music scene. 303 Magazine calls her a voice that refuses to go unnoticed. So it goes. That's Denver's Claire Haywood with Old Souls Motel. Thanks for joining our special poetry edition of Colorado Matters, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to producers Shauna Lewis and Natasha Watts. This is CPR News.